Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. We find that a little bit more than a third of Black adolescents were exposed to deadly gun violence in the last year versus about a quarter of Hispanic adolescents and only 4% of white adolescents. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Gun violence harms the health of victims and witnesses, but it also disrupts community social cohesion and behavioral norms. The people in communities that have experienced violence can suffer adverse health consequences, including post-traumatic stress disorder and the adoption of risky health behaviors. Exposure to gun violence and the disproportionate burden of that violence in certain communities is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Sarah James, a postdoctoral fellow at Cornell University, who published a paper in the June 2021 issue of Health Affairs. She and her co-authors analyzed data about adolescents living or attending school near a deadly gun violence incident in the past year, and they found stark trends by race and ethnicity, as well as income level. We'll be discussing those findings today. Dr. James, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So let's start with sort of a basic question. We're a health policy journal here at Health Affairs. Why is gun violence an important topic for a policy journal like ours to cover? Well, there are two pieces of the gun violence uh, topic. So one is violence. And as you spoke to in the intro, the trauma of violence generally is of concern for many types of health outcomes across uh, physical, psychological well-being, as well as the after effects of trauma. But guns, in particular, are used in more than three quarters of homicides in the United States, according to recent estimates. So any policy that is able to affect the level of firearm violence is uh, going to affect a large share of the deadly violence to which individuals may be exposed. And as we know, this is a topic of ongoing policy debate um, with some studies showing that policies such as background checks do decrease the quantity of firearm homicides, suggesting that this is a policy topic that's important for uh, community health effects across the population. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, maybe I should have asked myself the question, why did we choose to publish this article? But I think you've given us a great answer. Now, your study focused on adolescence. What's the particular importance of gun violence and and gun uh, violence-related deaths as they relate to adolescents? So we work with the adolescent population in large part because adolescence is the period uh, most proximate to adulthood, right? So this is setting the stage for adult health outcomes, health behaviors, and habits that get set for the remainder of one's life. Not that, of course, they're they're not modifiable, but this is a really critical period uh, as adolescents find their independence. And because adolescents are more independent, they're also out and about in their communities more than younger children, for example. And for that reason, we suspect that they're much more likely to be um, having more direct contact or more social contact related to individuals and institutions affected by violence. Now, one of the things I really liked about your study was the data you used. You used two very different data sources and uh, the results are only uh, understandable, attainable uh, by having access to both of them. Can, can you tell me about the two different data sources and what they were able to contribute to the analysis? Absolutely. 
So I should say I am a demographer. And one thing that's been said about demographers is that demographers love data. And I think this paper really bears that out. This project got started from a team of people, including my, my co-authors, of whom there are several, who worked with a long-term study of children in the United States called the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Study. So this was a birth cohort, which means there was a sample of children born in large U.S. cities around 1998 to 2000, and then followed up at many points across their childhood. So we were working with this sample at the time that they were adolescents, when they were about 15 years old, so 2015, give or take a few years, uh, depending on the particular adolescent's birthday. And we wanted to understand what were the factors leading to some adolescents having different health outcomes than others. And we had the opportunity, uh, sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, to link some external data sources to this already rich uh, longitudinal study with many follow-up waves. And so we identified what we thought was a really interesting source to understand violence, which was the Gun Violence Archive. The Gun Violence Archive is a nonprofit organization based in DC, and they collect information on all types of events involving gun violence from media sources, law enforcement, government reports, commercial sources, basically anywhere they can get their hands on them. And they have cataloged these on their website. You can check it out. That's gunviolencearchive.org. And they provide information on every detail that they can kind of compile standardly. So this includes the type of incident, how many people were involved, where it occurred down to the latitude and longitude coordinates. Um, and so we thought this is a really rich source of data. We need to do something with this. And we were able to collaborate with them to get their data and link it up to the adolescents in the cohort study that we'd been working with. And so what we did is we had the home address and we knew the schools that each teen attended. And so we linked that to this database of gun violence incidents. And so we were able to determine how many incidents had happened near their home and near their school, which we felt were the two most important contexts to consider for adolescents, because those two places are where they spend the majority of their time. Those are really rich data sources. And what I'm struck by also, as you answer that question is that uh, the Fragile Families is a longitudinal survey. The, the results you're presenting here are really just a point in time, but you could use what happened at this point and follow the lives of these children out in a way that uh, is impossible with cross-sectional data. So uh, it's, a, it's an exciting uh, application of the data. Let's start talking then about the findings. I have to say, reading the paper, you disaggregate, you compare, but before any of that, you read that one out of five adolescents in this sample of young people, and it's a, it's, it's adolescents living in cities, it's not all U.S. citizens, one out of five has been exposed to deadly gun violence within the past year. That is a phenomenal number. Can you just pause there before we break it down and reflect on the implications of that top level finding? So one thing I'll say, and uh, just to, to clarify, is there 
adolescents that were born in cities. So about half of them are living still in the same city and another 30% in the metropolitan area. So the vast majority are living nearby, but we do have about 20% that have moved to other locales. Um, but nonetheless, we were just shocked by this number. Uh, you know, prior studies in this area have not been able to use this really fine-grained information on deadly gun violence. And so we really didn't know when prior work had said, okay, maybe at the county level, you know, what share of adolescents live in a certain county, how much violence is there? This is just a whole different level. We're looking at deadly gun violence that we limit to being within 500 meters of the adolescent's home or school address. So that's a little bit under a third of a mile and about a six minute walk from your front door. This is really nearby. This is sobering, right? I hoped it would be lower, <laughs> of course. Um, and we were struck by the fact that this is 20% in just the one calendar year before their interview. This is happening every single year. And that means that we would predict quite a much larger share than 20% of, of young people are exposed, accumulating that across all the years of their life. Adults, of course, as well, we were focused on the pediatric population, but this this really suggests that this is quite a widespread experience in the population and not at all something that's limited to a small set of people. It's not a rare event in any way. Well, first of all, I appreciate your clarification on the data. This is a representative of people born in cities, not necessarily, not just representative of people living in cities. So that's an important clarification. You break this down by various subcategories and I'd like us to talk those through, but uh, we'll do that after we come back from a short break. The Rural Health Research Gateway is your preeminent resource for free, timely, and relevant rural health research funded by the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. Visit Gateway at ruralhealthresearch.org and subscribe to Gateway's research alerts to be notified whenever new rural health research is published. Follow Gateway on Twitter and Facebook at RHRGateway for key research findings. This message was paid for by the Rural Health Research Gateway at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Hey everyone, hope you're enjoying the show. We have exciting news for listeners of A Health Podacy. Next month's issue of Health Affairs is dedicated exclusively to border health and immigration. Our July issue features new research on migration and health policy at the U.S.-Mexico border and beyond. You can pre-order your copy now at healthaffairs.org or click the link in the show notes. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah James about adolescent exposure to deadly gun violence. Before the break, we were focused on just this overwhelming fact that one out of five adolescents uh, had been exposed to deadly gun violence just within the past year. Talk to me about the differences you see across racial and ethnic categories, and uh, then we'll also talk about the uh, income categories as well. So we find large differences by racial and ethnic group and by income as far as the share of adolescents who were exposed to deadly gun violence. The differences by race and ethnicity were quite dramatic. So we find that a little bit more than a third of Black adolescents were exposed to deadly gun violence in the last year versus about a quarter of Hispanic adolescents and only 4% of white adolescents. 
And similarly, there were differences by household income as well. So we compared poor and near poor adolescents to those living in households with middle to high incomes and found about a third of the adolescents living in poverty were exposed to deadly gun violence versus 10% of those with higher household incomes. And the next step we took was to put the these two categories together. So we looked within each racial group at income groups and within each income group at racial groups. And we found that the disadvantages uh, on each angle really compounded one another. So taking income and race together, we found that almost half of poor Black adolescents lived or attended school near deadly gun violence, but only 2% of middle to high income white adolescents. And while within each racial group, having a higher income was generally protective against gun violence, there was still a lot of gun violence even at higher incomes. And we find that even if you take only the highest income group, about 20% of Black and Hispanic adolescents live near gun violence versus about 10% of the poorest white adolescents. So no matter which way you cut it, Black and Hispanic teenagers are really bearing a disproportionate share of this community experience. Yeah, it's really striking. And this is something that the adolescent is not necessarily at all a part of. This is just their environment, what they're exposed to. And when you think about the long-term health effects of that exposure, it's it's daunting to imagine uh, what the cumulative effects of this kind of exposure are and, and then see these kinds of uh, disproportional uh, burdens. Um, now, you report violence near the home and near the school. In some ways, it's sort of obvious why you chose these two locations, but I think it's worth a moment. And tell us, uh, you know, are the results really basically the same for those? They just sort of add up together. What do you know about the location here? So they are similar, but they're not exactly the same. Um, And part of this is because, of course, schools are not always in the neighborhood that one lives in. We find that white and Hispanic adolescents are actually have more of the violence that they're near is near their schools than near their homes. So for the most part, they're getting exposed when they leave the neighborhoods that they live in. Whereas for Black adolescents, it's the opposite. They're more likely to be exposed in the neighborhoods that they do live in versus where they go to school. And we also are able to look at, because we do have two locations, who's exposed in both places. So this is presumably a more more intense uh, effect. And We find that Hispanic adolescents are actually more likely than either Black or white adolescents to be exposed in both contexts. And I think they're they're kind of getting the worst of both worlds, right? So they're living, they're having more of a moderate level of exposure in your home and a moderate level of exposure in your school. And those are combining such that that group has a higher share of the, the double burden. But nonetheless, we do find that even for this more intense level of exposure, income is still protective. So higher income in general does have lower levels across all sources of exposure. So pretty much every study ends with, we've learned a lot, but there's more we need to know. And your study is no exception. Uh, You mentioned some additional areas of inquiry, and I just wonder if you could talk a little more about them. Uh, We just focused on location, and you said perhaps it would be worth broadening out the location studied. Where where would you like to know more about and 
uh, how might we get the data to understand a, a bigger picture of, of exposure here? So that's a great question. We were able to work with home and school addresses because we had those reported in our study. But we didn't know all the types of places that adolescents or people of any age would move through, right? So depending on the age of uh, people being studied for exposure to violence more generally, work certainly seems to be important when you're thinking about adults, but for adolescents as well. And we're really curious about public spaces. So if you want to think of this as commuting or areas for social encounters. Um, Certainly with adolescents, we might think of going to the households of friends, family members, extracurricular activities and where they're held. To make our best estimate of the annual prevalence of exposure to violence of any type, we'd really like to know about the whole suite of locations that an individual moves through. And there are some promising exploratory studies of how this may be possible using things like smartphones to track individuals' movements and pairing that with information on violent events. Uh, so that would be one angle. And I know there's some some early work on that that seems promising. And as technology evolves to allow us to do that, that would certainly be the most comprehensive picture. Another topic is one we uh, spoke about briefly, which is the longitudinal nature of the data you're collecting. And you suggested additional inquiry about the accumulated effects of exposures to violence. Uh, What would you be looking for here? What might we expect to find? So for our purposes, uh, we are limited in the longitudinal effect of working with the Gun Violence Archive because it began in 2014. So we we can't go back in time before that, unfortunately. But as you had mentioned before, with this particular sample, we will be following them into the future. And in fact, we're interviewing them now when they're about 22 years old. And so here in a couple of years, when that data collection is complete, we're certainly interested to see the long-term effects of this type of exposure in adolescence into young adulthood. But really to understand the outcomes of these types of violence exposures and stressful events, we need to understand the pattern of the exposure across the life course. And so that has a few different elements. So one is timing, right? We would like to know, is exposure to violence at a certain age or a certain moment in your life having a bigger effect than violence at another point? We'd also want to know about types of violence. So what we consider here is in the category of indirect exposure to violence. We don't know whether the adolescent was there when this deadly gun violence occurred. But you can also think about more direct exposures, right? So actually witnessing a violent event, being the victim of a violent event, understanding the different effects of these types of exposures would be really important. And you can also pair that with the accumulation. So there are you might hypothesize that it's not a single event that has as big of an effect. It's if these events become chronic and repetitive. And as we've said, about 20% of adolescents are being exposed in any given year. So even over a short number of years, that will compound substantially for, for some adolescents potentially. So we'd like to investigate each of these hypotheses and as data becomes available or potentially linking the gun violence archive to other longitudinal studies uh, of the population, that would be really interesting and exciting. Those all sound like really important questions to answer. So as we wrap up, I just uh, want to reflect on your comment about uh, demographers loving data. You're a postdoctoral fellow. You're in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell. 
Um, that's not where we find most of our health services researchers. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you landed there and how being in that setting affects your approach to uh, your research. So here at Cornell, I'm in the College of Human Ecology, and within that, uh, actually in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management. So there's my my policy connection, um, and I'm in the Cornell Population Center. And these affiliations really reflect my perspective as a researcher. So each of these organizations is very interdisciplinary. And in fact, on this work, I have colleagues who are in sociology, demography, developmental psychology, social work. We're a pretty mixed group. Um, so I really take what I hope is the best of each of these approaches and, and blend them together in my work. Um, and I also really embrace the population level approach. So that's my demographic side, looking at these questions at a level that affects population health writ large. And uh, my specialization is on children and adolescents. So looking in the early part of the life course to understand how these disparities and differences emerge and when we might be able to intervene through policy to prevent or delay such negative effects. Well, uh, the interdisciplinary nature uh, shines through here, and it is a great strength of the work. Uh, Dr. James, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I was pleased that we were able to publish the paper, and I look forward to seeing the results of your continued research in this area. Thanks for being with me on today's Health Policy. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.